First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. The first reading is from Elizabeth Alexander from her poem, Praise Song for the Day. This was the inaugural poem for President Obama's first term. Each day we go about our business, walking past each other, catching each other's eyes or not, speaking or not speaking. All about us is noise. All about us is noise and bramble, thorn and din, each one of our ancestors on our tongues. Someone is stitching up a hem, darning a hole in a uniform, patching a tire, repairing the things in need of repair. Someone's trying to make music somewhere with a pair of wooden spoons on an oil drum with cello, boombox, harmonica, voice. A woman and her son wait for the bus. A farmer considers the changing sky. A teacher says, take out your pencils, begin. We encounter each other in words, words spiny or smooth, whispered or declaimed, words to consider, reconsider. We cross dirt roads and highways that mark the will of someone and then others who said, I need to see what's on the other side. I know there's something better down the road. We need to find the place where we are safe. We walk into that which we cannot yet see. Say it plain. Many have died for this day. Sing the names of the dead who brought us here, who laid the train tracks, raised the bridges, picked the cotton, the lettuce, built brick by brick the glittering edifices they would then keep clean and work inside of. Praise song for struggle. Praise song for the day. Praise song for every hand-lettered sign, the figuring it out at kitchen tables. Some live by love thy neighbor as thyself, others by first do no harm, or take no more than you need. What if the mightiest word is love? Love beyond marital, filial, national, love that casts a widening pool of light, love with no need to preempt grievance. In today's sharp sparkle, this clear air, anything can be made, any sentence begun, on the brink, on the brim, on the cusp, praise song for walking forward in that light. What do you do for your living? I knew a colleague once, now dead, who when I met him first was already very old. He was in his late 90s. He owned a little cabin in Maine that Ross and I rented every summer for a week when we lived in New England. And somehow it came out that not in our first year there that Clive, the owner, had been a minister, a Unitarian minister. And he just let this kind of slip out one day. And I think it was another year, maybe two, before he told us that story. Eventually, we learned that Clive had grown up in Nova Scotia in a mining family, very poor. Somehow he got to Harvard for his divinity degree, and he took his first church, his only church, in the middle of the 1930s on the tail end of the Great Depression in a small town in Massachusetts. 
One day, the wealthiest member of his congregation paid a visit and said he knew Clyde was letting union organizers hold meetings in the church basement. He said, I'm the biggest donor in this church. I'm the biggest donor in every church in this town. There will be no unions here. But Clive held a meeting anyway, and the next, the next Saturday night and on Sunday morning after church, he was fired. He spent the next 50 years in California organizing migrant workers, black, white, Mexican. He mentored a promising young organizer named Cesar Chavez. Sometimes he was arrested, more than once he was beaten, and through it all, he held on to his black preaching outfit black suit, white shirt, string tie, black hat, and his pulpit robe. So when he came into a new town, he could be among the workers without raising any suspicions of authorities. He was just the preacher. And he did preside through those years, he said, over many christenings and marriages in those fields of apricots and lettuce and funerals for poor people with no place they could go. So we met him decades later on this lake in Maine, and when we asked one time what line of work he'd been in, the first thing he said was, I was a Unitarian minister, even though he'd served one church for less than one year. So I was in my first congregation then, all chipper and rosy-cheeked and new, and I said, I am too, I'm a minister too, Unitarian Universalist, just like you. And Clive just didn't even look at me. <laughs> like, he just looked straight out over the water and said, uh-huh, <laughs> which did not feel like this warm collegial affirmation. And then after a while, as if he hadn't heard me or hadn't understood or in his great old age had somehow forgotten what I had just said, he turned and said, so what kind of work do you do? He had heard me, but what I'd said was meaningless to him because what I'd told spoke nothing of my work in the world or my calling in this life to just say, I'm a minister, Unitarian, or whatever, was to give him a title and a label, but it told him nothing about what I love, what I care about, what kind of courage I'd be willing to muster up when needed, what risks I might take, what I give my life and heart and soul to, what I think justice actually means and requires and compassion and service, all of that. So what kind of work do you do? How do you make your living? How are you making a life? How is your paid job the same as or different from the real work that you're here to do in this real world? Who measures the worth of your work and by what currency? The questions persist, whether you're employed or unemployed or underemployed or retired. My father was a public school teacher. My mother worked through most of my childhood as a clerk in a department store. At mid-century, in midlife, they were solidly middle class, but it was not always so. Before he was a teacher, my father had been a door-to-door -door insurance salesman, and before that, he went to college on the GI Bill, and before that, before the war, he'd grown up like Clive in the Depression in a kind of deadly, soul-sucking poverty that he never talked about. As a teacher, 
He was always active in the teachers union. And I remember they were on strike at least twice when I was growing up. And one of those times in the 1970s did not involve a local contract issue. The teachers in New York state walked out in solidarity with the United Farm Workers in California. And looking back, I think he felt a sense of solidarity with the despair of his childhood and this lifelong kinship with the economic underdog. So when I was 15, I had my first job, my first vocation, working as a cashier in the A&P supermarket, where I was proud to join the union. In fact, I had to join. It was a closed shop. But I was proud to do it and to carry my little card of the amalgamated butchers and meat cutters of America, which bound me by my dues and by my pledge not actually to the real butchers in the back room with their bloody aprons and their cigars dripping ashes in the meat. But it found me, more importantly, to the long history of the labor movement, which is a proud American history, from the origins of May Day in Chicago to the origins of Occupy Wall Street to right now where we are. This is the history of the people who brought us the weekend and an end to child labor and the dignified beauty of the eight-hour day. Sometimes on long road trips or in waiting rooms, I play this little game. I like to try to list all the surnames I can think of that have old jobs buried inside them. And these are mostly English names, but I have a feeling it works in other languages too. So think of all the people you know whose ancestors or in-laws about whom you know just a little something just by knowing their names. Mr. Baker, Ms. Brewer, John Taylor, Jane Carpenter, Bowman, Archer, Hunter, Tanner, Collier, Carter, Cartwright, Cooper, Sawyer, Thatcher, Joiner, Plumber, Farrier, Carrier, Falconer, Fisher, Fowler, Gardener, Draper, Potter, Porter, Shepherd, Scribner, Marshall, Miller, Parson, Smith. These are common names. They're not noble titles. They're not labels. Only a few people in this world are named prince or king. These names are records of community relationship. They're an etymological archaeology of the value and legacy of manual labor. They are evidence of an ancient economic interdependence. We live within the cunning of the global market economy now, upon which we all depend and in which we are inextricably complicit. And we live within the wisdom of the commonwealth, which teaches a deeper interdependence. What kind of work do you do? What work are we all doing to expose and rebuild all the fragile bonds of right relation? We're called to the work of love and struggle. The reading I've selected this morning is the poem Vocation by William Stafford. This dream the world is having about itself includes a trace on the plains of the Oregon Trail, a groove in the grass my father showed us all one day while meadowlarks were trying to tell something better about to happen. I dreamed the trace to the mountains, over the hills, and there a girl who belonged wherever she was. 
But then my mother called us back to the car. She was afraid. She always blamed the place, the time, anything my father planned. Now both of my parents, the long line through the plain, the meadow larks, the sky, the world's whole dream remain. And I hear him say while I stand between the two, helpless, both of them part of me, your job is to find what the world is trying to be. What is the work of your heart? When I was looking for a reading for today's theme, something new to me as I'm new to the celebrant team and haven't led a service before, my English major brain went straight to poetry. I searched poems about vocation and found this lovely poem, which we will now do an entire literary analysis on. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But the last line struck me. Your job is to find what the world is trying to be. What is the world trying to be? That's a pretty big question for a holiday weekend, so I won't make you answer it. Maybe we'll circle back at the end. However, I will tell you about my job. My day job is as a sexual health educator. So yes, I talk to teens about STDs, pregnancy, healthy relationships, and consent all day. It's a delight. <laughs> I'm also a trained death educator and death doula, which is kind of like a birth doula, just in the opposite direction. You could say I don't shy away from topics our society has deemed taboo. And these roles certainly feed my soul, but the true work of my heart is as an adoptee doula. That's an idea you probably haven't heard of, and that's okay, I hadn't either. I was placed in a closed adoption at a month old. When I was a senior in college and struggling to find my place in all of this, I became curious about my family of origin. I began gathering information with a little help from my parents and the adoption agency. That work was easy enough, just data, but the emotional and mental work, I faced that mostly on my own. I was also working on my senior paper at the time, a personal essay about my search and reunion, which was work in and of itself. I was literally writing my story as it was unfolding. My reunion has been successful in that I've established relationships with both sides of my birth family. <clears throat> I'm especially close to my maternal aunt Muriel. She was and is my best and most stable connection to my birth mother, Judy. Last May, seven years into reunion, I finally met my birth mother in person. It was a short visit as she was on hospice. I saw her twice more before she died a month later. In the weeks after her death, I reflected deeply on my journey. I kept wishing I'd had someone with me through all the twists and turns, the elation and heartache, someone who really got it. So I decided to be that for other adult adoptees. Over the last year, I've walked alongside a handful of adoptees as they navigate the search and reunion process. I've worked with folks from Iowa, New York, Tennessee, and even Northern Ireland. 
The search and reunion process sometimes looks like data gathering, which actually can really be a challenge for adoptees. Up until last year, people adopted in Iowa were unable to access vital information like medical and social history and their original birth certificates. Other times, it looks like mediating tough conversations with adoptive family members and or birth, uh, birth families. Most of the time, though, it's spent telling stories and exploring the thoughts and emotions that surface. I have been so very honored to hold their stories in my heart and share their journeys as they unravel and unfold. So what is the job of the world? I believe the world is trying to lead us into connection with one another. That's what we're all longing for, right? To know and be known. The work of my heart is just one thread in the web that connects us all. What's yours? Hello, I'm Louise Alcorn. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Richard Nelson Bowles, the author of What Color Is Your Parachute? That's the best-selling how do I transition from one profession to another book. That's had many, many editions. He wrote... Always define what you want to do with your life and what you have to offer to the world in terms of your favorite talents, gifts, or skills, not in terms of a job title. So how do you figure out what those talents are? Although we are not a denomination that generally goes in for confession, um, I nonetheless have a confession to make. Uh, I have long since been convinced that I have tattooed across my forehead in invisible ink that only the lost can see the words, ask me, I like to help. Yeah, right. <laughs> How do I know this is true? Because I will go to the grocery store with no makeup on and sweatpants and a paint-stained t-shirt and will still be asked by other customers where they can find the tahini sauce or the fish sticks. And of course, I will show them. <laughs> because I will be walking down the street in a foreign town running, running a terrible fever and really only concerned with getting back to my hotel and will nonetheless be stopped by lost Americans asking me in broken German how to get to the torture museum. <laughs> yes, this really happened. And yes, I knew where to tell them to go. <laughs> Ask me, I like to help. So somewhat inevitably, I became a public reference librarian. A few years ago, I was talking to one of my regular patrons and mentioned that we were having a debate about whether to wear name tags to identify ourselves as staff when we're away from a service desk. He said, uh, but Louise, you don't need a name tag. You have helpfulness written all over you. I'm pretty sure this was a compliment, uh, but it did get me thinking at first, very literally, hence my theory about the invisible ink, you know, ask me, I like to help. It also made me think about the different ways that our personal traits are written upon us. Selfishness, anger, kindness. I believe these are parts of our being that manifest through our physical selves. So why not helpfulness? In library school, uh, we're taught to have an open face when approaching patrons. 
to make ourselves accessible. My first week, a professor with some humor informed me that this was not something I actually needed to learn. Somewhere along the way, I'd already learned it. I thought about the grocery store and I realized they were right. But had I learned it, or rather, was it simply a part of my genetic makeup? Was this why it was, quote, written all over me? Was it actually written into my genetic code? Was I actually born with a compulsion to provide service to the public, to be helpful, to give directions to random strangers? Yes, I do this all the time. We could debate whether this is a personality trait, a neuroses, or a genetically predisposed addiction. Um, but let's take it as read that the compulsion exists. I started to call this trait the public service gene. I even did a church service on this many years ago. Some of you may have seen it. Like Elliot, who found a way to use their own experience to guide others, I consider myself unbelievably lucky that my daily work matches up with what is clearly my inner makeup. I basically give directions all day. Let's take a moment to revisit what Bowles wrote. Always define what you want to do with your life and what you have to offer to the world in terms of your favorite talents, gifts, or skills, not in terms of a job title. In other words, find the right work for your genes. Find what you are called to do. What are you called to do? Or just read what's on your forehead and go with that. These words are from Frederick Buchner, novelist and minister. Your vocation is where your greatest joy and the world's greatest need intersect. Our lives, he says, flow into each other as wave flows into wave. And unless there's peace and joy and freedom for you, there can be no real peace or joy or freedom for me. Unless we live for each other and in and through each other, we don't really live very well. There really can be no life, no good life, unless there is, in just this sense, real love. Since 1886, the 1st of May has been celebrated all over the world as the International Workers' Holiday. It began in Chicago. It was taken up in Europe and beyond. It's still celebrated in almost every country on the planet except this one in May. In 1958, with concern about communist infiltration, Congress renamed the 1st of May Loyalty Day and moved America's Labor Day to the fall to September, to right where we are now. The poem Bread and Roses was written when Labor Day was still in May for us in 1912 by Paul Oppenheim, a native of St. Paul, to honor women workers, many of them children, in the textile mills of Lawrence, Massachusetts. This is a song for the work you do, all of you, all of us, for work you've done, and for all the good hard labor of those who came before us, that every single person could have bread and roses too. 